0: It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I
1: think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture.
2: Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the show. Ewan, I get the feeling that you might be a little ticked off about something. That's very good. You've obviously been practising that one. Yes, this is uh,
3: the Blue Tick controversy on uh, Twitter, which has been playing out uh, on Twitter
2: mostly. As, as with all controversies on Twitter, mostly very important on <laughs> very Twitter. Important. very li- Not very important to basically everyone else.
3: Yes, exactly. The news some Twitter accounts with more than a million followers have had their blue tick badges reinstalled without them needing to pay the $8 a month to subscribe. But more interesting than that is some research into which politicians
2: have been choosing to cough up the money to keep their verified blue ticks. Yeah, Andrew McDonald from Politico was looking into this and he says they include the former business secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, Nadine Dorries, and also Andrew Bridgen, uh, famous most recently for his tweets about COVID vaccines. So at least we know he's a prolific user of the site. Yeah, interesting. They've all decided
3: to pay the money for the little blue tick. Hugo Rifkin of the Times says in a tweet, obviously, that the whole affair has been a uh, resentful result against an elite. Uh, some people really resented not being part of the Twitter elite, he says, and they wanted the system to be smashed. But now the system has been smashed with the help of uh, billionaire Mr. E. Musk. Well, nothing is really better. Uh, And uh, now we can see who exactly was bothered about not being elite. Because they've had to pay for a little blue, pic, pic, little blue tick to tell us. <laughs> really, oh, I'm never going to say that, little blue tick yeah, exactly. ever again.
2: <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that nearly went very wrong <laughs> and perhaps would give us a much greater indication of how some of us might feel about the changes uh, on <laughs> Twitter we should, as well. We should never speak about Twitter again. Yes, I think we're probably going conclude on that point there. But look, I mean, it's sort of this is one of these things that's very important to some people and only matters to a very tiny percentage uh, of the population. Mostly journalists. Yes, indeed. Uh, and thus, that is all the attention. We shall give it for now.
3: So the prime minister is holding talks today with major businesses and investors as his government tries to fill a void created by the implosion of Britain's biggest business lobby group, the CBI. But let's discuss this with our UK business editor, Julian Harris. Julian, what do you think the government uh, is trying to get out of all of this
4: today? I think it's very convenient timing for the government, really. Um, I, I suspect uh, Rishi Sunak Jeremy Hunt have been planning this for a while, um, largely because the, the Conservative government's relations with business uh, have not been great for a long time and have been dealt with in, in, in very different ways um, by previous administrations. Um, obviously, we had the Boris Johnson expletive, which which was perhaps the low point, um, but also they, they see... Uh, they see the business world and the economy through a very different, um, very different eyes than than, than, than Johnson and or, or you could say probably Truss and, and, and even May. So I think that this today so far it seems to be a very Sunak-esque event. It's all very slick. Um, it is well attended, fair enough. Um, there, there are some really big name CEOs there. Um, it's all it's all very positive it's it's sort of back to back to free market future futuristic sectors this kind of stuff um but of course it comes um it comes while um, the CBI is is seemingly imploded and i I don't think they'll they'll be particularly fussed about that, I think quite the opposite. I think this, as as you say, this kind of neatly, very neatly makes it look as if this administration can conduct these relations on its own terms without the need for
2: that sort of group. So is that does that appear to be the bigger plan then, rather than having a replacement group that emerges that would speak for business in the way that the CBI has done up until now? Of course, the CBI uh, suspending large parts of its operations last week due to the investigations it's holding uh, following allegations of sexual misconduct um, against staff members. Um, so is the government trying to, to rather, as you say, bypass the idea of having a business lobby like that altogether? Or is there a quest that, question that perhaps another organisation could spring up in its place?
4: I think they wouldn't want to be seen to be doing that, but I think that that is quietly what conservatives would quite like. Um, they haven't been enamoured with the CBI for a long time. Obviously, was the f- there was the fallout over over Brexit and everything. Uh, but I think generally, um, I mean, and as as we keep seeing in Westminster, the cons- conservatives and civil servants see things in very different ways. And from the conservatives we've spoken to, um, and even people in 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 the lobby group area, there's just n- there's there are. No tears being shed, really, and I think they're probably aware that it's, it's it's it would be negative for them to be seen to be pushing the CBI under. But while they can just they can just stand there serenely and and, and kind of let things pass, and they will do that. I think it's important to say this group. I mean, this what they've started today is very much led by the government, so it's very very different from the CBI, which is you know a sort of separate. Um, uh, Party-neutral body set up by by King's Charter, um, but it does it does what what they will be certainly hoping for is that it presents yeah the impression that they're not so reliant on one big lobby group like the CBI there are of course still lots of other lobby groups as well and this is the thing that needs to play out you know there are a lot of people in the business world in the finance world who will probably say we've got our own groups we have our own sector specific groups we have our own relations with the government and maybe some of those people are not desperate to have a new CBI set up.
3: Mm, so there could be a sort of splintering of of, of business representation. A business still OK being seen to be c- c- close to the Conservatives? Or, or do you think, you know, as we approach a general election, a general election in which the Tories might be turfed out, do you think some businesses are getting a bit more c- cautious about that?
4: I, I think so, yeah. I think they're aware of, even though things fluctuate and they have done re- in, in recent weeks, uh, ultimately the chances are that Keir will win the next election and then we'll have a Labour government potentially for some time as well. And that's why we have seen uh, businesses um, sort of shifting slightly towards Labour. Some people have stuck their necks out, which we've reported. We've had one or two defections even sort of directly from, from Conservatives to Labour. Most, of course, will be far, far more cautious than that. So it does, you know, while there still is 18 months uh, at least, um, one would think of, of this government to run, um, and it is getting along with everyday business. It, it, it makes sense to to be at these events. and I, I don't think it I don't think it looks too bad for them, but they they absolutely have an eye on maintaining strong relations with with labor.
2: So for politicians, is, is this then an opportunity for them to speak more directly to businesses uh, if the CBI is in limbo as it is now? or why is it so important that that they i suppose try to move on from from this and find a new way of talking to business
4: i think for for this government in particular for for, for these politicians they're just very keen to To reset how the Conservatives are seen, and it, it wasn't that long ago that we had, you know, f- financial calamity essentially on the markets and and the, and, and the pound plummeting, um, and and prior to that, the Conservative the idea that the Conservatives were the natural party of business, um, and pro free enterprise and so on was 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 absolutely eroded as, as it, it went in a in a in a different direction, and and certainly. For 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 Sunak and Hunt, this this is the example of, to reinstate that, and the Prime Minister's been very heavy on that rhetoric this morning, and t- talking about how he he will be unash, you know, he is unashamedly pro business and enterprise. Whether you're talking about big companies or small companies, he's not trying to kind of um, c- couch it as as politicians still do. So I think a lot of it is that kind of branding. Um, I I do wonder whether some of the businesses in the room will think like how how much of this stuff will they have a, have time to implement, um, given given that yeah there will be an election in not too long.
3: Julian, really interesting to get your view. Thanks so much for joining us. That's our UK business editor uh, Julian Harris on the uh, rapid uh, unraveling of uh, the CBI.
2: Now Labour MP and former frontbencher Diane Abbott has been suspended from the party after she wrote a letter saying that Jewish people do not face the same sort of racism as black people. She's later apologised for the comments which were published in the Observer newspaper but it comes as the Labour Party is trying to move on from years of accusations of anti-Semitism under the former leader Jeremy Corbyn. We'll discuss, to discuss now the broader issues around this we're joined by the barrister and author Hashi Mohammed whose book People Like Us What It Takes uh, to Make It in Modern Britain tackles some of these issues. You've also written Uh, about uh, racial justice and social justice in the UK as well. So it's interesting to have you with us today, uh, Hashi, on the programme. I I wonder what your view is on this controversy around what Diane Abbott had to say.
5: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, I think it's a really unfortunate set of circumstances. I think there are about probably four things that come to mind, really. One is that we can't ignore the context in which these comments have come. And that context is a Labour Party that was led by Jeremy Corbyn, to whom she was quite close, that was accused of and found to be not taking this issue of anti-Semitism quite seriously. So we can't ignore that background. We can't ignore the way in which uh, uh, Keir Starmer is approaching this and and trying to be seen to be acting on this matter. The second is also the the history of of, of what this issue is about in this country, whether it's about anti-Semitism, whether it's about racism, the history that we have in this country is that we really haven't been able to grapple with this issue in a way that we can have a adult conversation and have a meaningful conversation without people sort of either saying that you mean this or you mean that and unable to give each other the benefit of the doubt and have that debate in good faith. Third was just about this question of, of, of the ability to not appreciate that if you are gonna talk about racism against black people, you shouldn't sort of invalidate the racism and the prejudice that other communities might face. And it's what I call the sort of grievance uh, uh, Olympics, whereby if you were to try and talk about the racism that's affecting one particular group of people, it doesn't mean that the racism that faces the travelers, the prejudice that faces the Jewish people and the Jewish community is somehow less important or less valid or less prevalent. And again, it's that ability to not have that final conversation to 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 have that and then the final thing is just just generally at the moment people are much quicker to take offense much quicker to want to say you're wrong much quicker to disagree and much much more uh likely to get clicks and 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 sort of engagement on that basis rather than trying to find common ground and being giving people the benefit of the doubt so that's what i think is the context of this really
2: Did Labour then, in your view, make the right decision by suspending her? I mean, Diane Abbott is a role model for many people. She's the longest serving black MP in Parliament. She's someone who has been uh, blazed a trail in her own way throughout her career.
5: Yeah, I think the Labour Party has made a decision that is
2: politically savvy, but I don't
5: necessarily consider it to be a useful decision for how we advance the ability to have a conversation about this issue. Diane Abbott was the first uh, black woman to be elected to parliament, one of four black people to be elected to parliament uh, in 1987. She has an enormous amount of respect and cachet within the communities that she has helped out in Hackney, within the Labour Party, within the black community. And so it it, it might've been a bit more wise for the Labour Party to have been careful about how they would have reacted to this But again, a Labour Party that's trying to distance itself from Jeremy Corbyn, a Labour Party that's trying to get elected, a Labour Party that is attempting to look that it's acting and not dithering, this sort of thing makes sense. So it's politically savvy, but I don't think it helps us in being able to have a much better conversation, a much wiser way of discussing this very thorny and very difficult issue.
3: Looking at the wider context, I know this is something you've written about before, the the Sewell uh, commission report on on racism or the lack of racism in this country something which is plenty on on the left of criticized. the report did reflect the views of some black and minority i think people in britain didn't it that that britain is a place of of opportunity are, are you are you sort of totally against the the, the broad thrust of the, the sill report uh, i'm
5: i was against again as a lawyer you might be uh you might appreciate that i'm very careful with my own words would i say i was against the total thrust of it i think i was yes i think i would say i was against the total thrust of it but was i against the whole report and everything that it had in it absolutely not uh the the general point that it was trying to convey in that we've made progress in this country that we are much better at, uh, at helping um uh, people of minority backgrounds than most of our european neighbors and certainly the americans um w- are we just generally a better society than we were when stephen lawrence died and we had the mcpherson report absolutely but has there are there continuing issues yes have some things gone back uh, absolutely Are we still seeing black people being disproportionately stopped and searched or killed? Are we seeing black women disproportionately dying uh, during childbirth? Are we seeing uh, a disproportionate amount of uh, prejudice when it comes to your name on a CV? Uh, Try being a black guy with a Muslim name called Hashim Mohammed and applying to a very elitist profession like the bar. I mean, so the the notion that we have made progress is absolutely correct. But what I thought the sewer report did was that it was basically a political positioning of a conservative government that was very keen on just papering over the major fault lines that exists and then overstating the progress that we've made. And that's my issue with the sewer report.
2: Well, how do, do then we get to, as you put it, a position where we can have an adult conversation about race in Britain in 2023? How should we frame that conversation and how do we, I you suppose, know, take it out of the context of, of reports like the Sewell Report, which which you've criticised, and what, what we see on social media and that sort of knee-jerk reaction that you talked about a little earlier that we see in, in, in many different spheres?
5: Yeah, I think that that's quite easy to do.
2: The first thing you've got to acknowledge is
5: as a society, we've made a huge amount of progress, but we still have much more to do. And so the idea that somehow we will get to a point where no racism exists, where there is no longer any prejudice, where that nobody will ever be discriminated based on uh, an accident of birth is nonsense. And so we've got to stop thinking that we will ever get to a point where this issue is no longer an issue. The problem of racism and prejudice generally has been around for the dawn of time. It's the way humans react to each other. It's the way that we understand each other, frankly. It's the way we differentiate from one another. So the first thing to note is just we make, we've made a huge amount of progress and we've still got much more to do, but we're never going to get to a point where we think we've arrived. That's another big fundamental error that most people make when it comes to trying and understand this issue. The second is that, you know, the idea that minority groups cannot be racist or prejudicial or that their policies, political ideas and actions are are somehow immune or neutral because they might be black or brown is nonsensical. Take Suela Braverman, take Rishi Sunak and think about their policies and the kind of things that they've been talking about, whether it's Rwanda or British Pakistani men and grooming gangs. The notion that somehow what they're saying could not be prejudicial or racist because they happen to be brown people who have children of immigrants is absolutely bogus. And so again, you know, the white folk of society do not have a monopoly on racism. And that's another aspect of the conversation that is often papered over and misunderstood. The next uh, uh, aspect of this is that we need to be careful with our words. Words matter, words make a difference, words hurt, bruise, and have long-lasting effects on society, particularly if they are mentioned and or uttered by people of huge influence in our society, a Home Secretary, a Prime Minister, uh, a boss, a a manager, uh, and so on. And so for me, it's acknowledging the fact that we've made a huge amount of progress, but that we are never ever going to eradicate racism completely. White people don't have a, a monopoly on what it means to be racist, Words matter and what that looks like involves being very careful about what you say and how you say it. And then finally, just being candid about our own specific problems without being influenced by the French or the Americans, but British society specifically as we currently stand and as we are doing. It's an enormous amount of amazing progress to see a prime minister, and a home secretary who are incredibly powerful people who happen to be minorities themselves. But are they making progress to this society when they talk the way that they do and they act the way that they act? Are they genuinely making progress? Because I think that's a massively lost opportunity. They could stand there and say, we've done a lot, but we've got much more to do. But these are the actions we're taking, and this is why we're taking them without wanting to vilify a specific group of people.
3: Hashi, really interesting to get your thoughts. Hashi Mohammed, uh, author of People Like Us, What It Takes to Make It in Modern Britain. Thanks so much for joining us on the show.
2: Several nations have ramped up efforts to evacuate their citizens from war-torn Sudan. Countries including the UK and the US have organised rescue efforts. The World Health Organisation says that more than 420 people have died and at least 3,700 others have been injured amid intense fighting between Sudan's army and the Rapid Support Forces militia. Let's speak to Bloomberg's Simon Marks, who covers East Africa for us. Um, Simon, can you please explain the background to this latest flare-up of violence and what exactly is happening in Sudan? now.
1: Well, as of this morning, I've been speaking to the few residents who do have access to internet in the city and there is still violence raging. And that is going on amid mass exodus from Khartoum, the capital. Many people are heading north towards Egypt. Others are taking a road east towards Port Sudan, where they're hoping to get boats out uh, across the Red Sea. And all of this really began on April 15. That's when this current conflict broke out. But it comes after many, many months, even years of growing tensions between these two generals. Um, Bohan came to power after the fall of Omar al-Bashir, the former dictator. And he was head of the Sudanese armed forces. Meanwhile, you have Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who is the head of a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces, which gained power under the former dictator by helping the government quash dissent mainly in Darfur, but also in central areas of Sudan. And over recent years, he's had a lot of backing from Gulf states and others in the region to really grow into a massive military power in the country.
3: Simon, what's the situation like on the ground? What's, what's, what's it like for ordinary Sudanese? I read in your piece that there's only 2% of connectivity to the internet across the country.
1: Yeah, um, quite amazingly, people have had access to data on their phones up until now. But beyond that, the situation is really devastating. The majority of hospitals so 90% of hospitals are just not functioning and the remaining 10% are really hanging on for everything they've got. Um, supplies are running low. There's no water in many parts of the city running water. So people are really scrambling to buy bottled water. Food is also running low. You know, Sudan is one of Africa's poorest countries anyway. And their health systems always been teetering on the edge. So this has really plunged it into a complete crisis. We've
2: seen a number of countries including the UK and the US uh, to organise rescue efforts to get their citizens and their diplomats out of the country. How how big an exodus is this and, and how significant is it that we have Western governments like the UK making these decisions?
1: Well, the situation had become so dire in the city and many diplomats and UN officials had been actually injured or assaulted in what was happening. So I think the international community took a decision at some point that they just had to get their key staff out. Now, so far, we've seen hundreds leave in planes um, and in some cases, vehicles as they go towards port sudan some key staff for certain embassies have remained for example the eu ambassador to sudan is still in the country and has pledged to continue trying to do some work there but it is significant and many sudanese people feel very angry that the international community is sort of hanging them out to dry after essentially backing these two generals in the negotiations for a so-called democratic transition in the country. so Many people think they should have been condemned after a coup that took place in 2021 and that sanctions should have been rolled out and instead these two men were allowed to foster power and and stay in a position of, of leverage.
3: Blue Simon Marks, who covers uh, East Africa for us, thanks so much for joining us on the show today.
2: Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Well, this episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Mariful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK
5: Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.